Thanks, ladies, for being here this morning. I am Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team, and I am so glad to be here with you this morning. And I've been so excited about being in the Gospel of Mark. I hope you have too. You know, it was funny as I've been looking at um, the book of Mark over the last couple of months, studying it and preparing for this um, study that we're having. It was interesting. Um, It caught my eye how often they are in boats in the Gospels. And the other thing that caught my eye is it's only men in these boats. Now, I I don't know whether women were never in boats, whether they didn't cross or whatever, but what we have recorded is always these men in these boats. And it it made me think about a time a couple of years ago. I was at... um, the coast on Padre Island with my husband Billy and we were eating at um, this cute little seafood restaurant that's actually right there on the water and it has um, a dock and the people that are boating up and down the intercoastal canal there on Padre Island, it's mostly fishermen or people that are fishing, you can pull right up to this dock in your boat and then get out and go in the restaurant and eat. Now the catch is, of course, that when you dock your boat, you are in full view of everyone Um, that's eating in the restaurant. So you don't want to make a mess of it and then have to go in and sit next to the people that are thinking, take a lesson, learn how to drive a boat here. You scared all of us. Um, So a couple of years ago, Billy and I were eating there and there were boats already docked and and they were all fishing guide boats, you know, and, and all these guys that had been out fishing for the day were getting out and coming in and eating and whatever. And all of a sudden, up pulls a boat, a really great fishing boat, filled with only women. And I was like, oh, wow, look, a a boat full of women. And there was, it was obviously a family, and there was a mom that was driving the boat. She was in her 50s, and standing next to her at the uh, wheel was what was apparently the grandmother. She was in her 70s. And then up front in the boat were these two darling um, college-age girls manning the ropes as they docked this boat. And, wow, she did us proud, ladies. She docked that boat right between all those fishing guide boats, you know, and the guys are kind of looking at her, and she just pulls right up. And then the other thing is they're all dressed so cute. They all had on these, you know, little nautical, you know, shorts and T-shirts and matching visors, and the grandmother had on this cute sun hat. And I thought... Okay, see guys, this is what you look like when you go out fishing. You know, you should dress for the occasion. And so she docks that boat right there between these guide boats and the daughter up front steps gracefully out onto the dock with the rope to tie up the bow of the boat. And she puts one foot on the dock and she has one foot in the boat and the gals in the boat say something to her. And so she turns around and starts talking to him. And you know, women, they just start talking and don't pay attention. So you know what happens here, don't you? The boat, she hasn't tied the boat up, and the boat begins to drift away until she is, and she falls right in the water in front of everyone, (laughs) cute outfit and all, in front of everyone in the restaurant. And then, of course, this boat full of women do what women do. They screamed. They all screamed. (laughs) And so anyone that was in the restaurant that hadn't seen this boat full of women now sees the boat full of women. And then after they scream, they're all laughing so hysterically. 
they cannot get this gal out of the water. So now there's no ladder on the fishing boat. There's no ladder on this dock. And they're trying to pull and they can't. And so, gentlemen that they were, the fishing guides on either side of them have to tie up their boat and go um, hoist this gal out of the water. And then they were brave enough to come into the restaurant and eat after that, even though the one gal is soaking wet. But the funny thing about it to me is you could just see every man in the restaurant kind of look at each other and say, see, that's why women Don't dock boats. They can't quit talking long enough to tie the boat up before they get into trouble. So maybe that's why we don't see women in these boats on the Sea of Galilee. I don't know. Um, But regardless, we're going to see another boat today. We're going to turn to uh, Mark chapter 5 and read together, beginning in verse 1. Join me. They went across the lake to the regions of the Gerasenes when Jesus got out of the boat. A man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him night and day among the tombs and in the hills he would cry out and cut himself with stones." Now, the region that Jesus and his disciples arrive at on, uh, is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. If you still have your map, you can see the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. And here's the picture that we had last week of the Sea of Galilee. This is what it looks like. And if you'll leave it up there for a few minutes, guys, we're going to look at it for a while. Anyway, it's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And you can see that they pull up right there and as soon as Jesus steps out of the boat on this southeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and this is primarily a Gentile region, most likely. He's met by a man whose life is so very difficult. I don't know about you, but it was almost hard to read about in these first five verses. He's possessed by demons. And I think Deb said to you a few weeks ago when she first started out our series in Mark that uh, demon uh, activity was um, so rampant during the time that Jesus walked on the earth. Because what was Satan trying to do? He was trying to do everything possible. He had not been able to prevent Jesus's uh, birth, the coming of the Messiah, but he was going to do whatever he could to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. So demon activity was way more uh, than it normally is on the earth because of Jesus's physical presence. Um, This man is so controlled by demons that he has physical supernatural strength. Can you imagine how strong you would have to be to be able to tear iron chains off your hands and feet? I can't imagine that it wouldn't just destroy your flesh. And because of his bizarre and erratic behavior, this man had been living here on the hillside of the Sea of Galilee and what were probably just caves or caverns that were carved out of these hills that people used for tombs. But Because he cried out constantly, day and night. Because he was naked. Because he shrieked and chased people. This is where the man was um, living in the most difficult of circumstances. Um, Now this account that we have in these first five verses has got a little more detail to it than the other 
some of the other gospels do, and we can probably take from that that this is an eyewitness account of Peter, and he's told it to Mark. So Peter has been with Jesus, and he's witnessed this, and he's passed it on to Mark. But you know what's interesting about this graphic eyewitness account of what's happening here is this is actually, ladies, a desperate attempt by Satan at every turn to distort and destroy the image of God as it was meant to be displayed in man. Just think what this man looks like as demon-possessed and think what God intended his own image to be displayed in man. And this is an attempt by Satan to destroy that. And it was working until Jesus steps out of the boat right here on the Sea of Galilee. So let's read about this encounter. Read with me verses 6 through 10. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, For we are many. And then he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area. Now, when the man sees Jesus, when Jesus steps out of that boat, this man runs and he falls at his feet in front of Jesus and he begs him not to send him out of the area. Now, this man's every movement is controlled by the demons. So we can know that this is the demons actually acknowledging uh, that Jesus is not only divine, he is divine and they know it and they also know that he is superior to them. And so this is the demons that are uh, precipitating this movement. They call him the son of the most high God and they kneel before him. But this is not worship. They are not praising him and worshiping him. They're simply paying homage to the fact that they realize he has the upper hand here and they want to... um, let him know that they beg him for mercy. And how ironic is it that this demon, these demons that are the torturers, they've been torturing this poor man. They've been trying to distort God's image in this man. And how ironic is it that they turn around and say, in the name of God, don't torture me. If it wasn't such a pitiful situation, it would be laughable that we see that this demon is completely, these demons are completely self-centered, aren't they? It is all about the demon here. Don't torture me. Don't, Don't make my life terrible. So Jesus addresses the lead demon here, asking his name. And the reply he gets is legion. Now in Jesus' day, a legion, uh, everyone knew that that was a regiment of 6,000 Roman soldiers. And the word would have given everyone the uh, impression of great strength, great oppression, and certainly great authority. And that's exactly what this man had been experiencing with all these thousands of demons. He was greatly oppressed and he was completely under their authority. But despite the great numbers of demons and the great power they possess, in verse 10, they repeatedly begged Jesus not to send them out of the area. And no one really knows why they didn't want to go out of the area. There was no um, real thought about what that's about. But what we do know is that every time Jesus encountered demons in the gospel, they were concerned about being sent to their final end because they know that Jesus has the power to send them to their final end. Look on your verse sheet. 
Luke 8.31 says, And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. And in Mark 1.24, the demon says, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? They know that Jesus has that power, the complete authority to destroy them. And they're concerned about it. Let's read in verse 11 how Jesus responds to them. A a large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs and allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave. This is quite a scene, isn't it? Uh, Apparently the demons wanted desperately to not be in any kind of a disembodied state. They wanted to occupy somebody. And they knew that Jesus would not give them the permission to go into another human being. So they asked to go into the pigs just so that they can have a Uh, a body. And what happens is uh, immediately, and if you'll take a look at this picture, there is a steep hillside there. Can you imagine what it must have looked like to see 2,000 crazed, demonic possessed pigs? And I think pigs are a little crazy anyway, but um, this would have made them even more crazy, rush down that hillside and they drown themselves in the water. Um, And as the pigs are drowning, The pig herders run off. They are thinking, whoa, we've never seen anything like this before. And they go to the surrounding towns and to the countryside. And everyone they see, they tell about this remarkable event that has occurred right here on the side of the Sea of Galilee. And the story is so unbelievable that people come to see it for themselves. They don't just go about their day. They, the townspeople and the farmers, all come to see what has happened Now, I don't know about you, but I have been mesmerized in the last couple of weeks by the picture of that cruise ship turned over on its side uh, right there. It just looks so uh, um, surreal. Like, how could this happen, this beautiful little Italian coastline and the little village and this giant um, cruise ship on its side? It doesn't even look like, it looks like somebody made up the picture to me, like it can't even be real. And I can only imagine that these townspeople in their day and age, when they get to this beautiful, peaceful side of their uh, Sea of Galilee and see 2,000 dead pigs floating in the water, how um, unusual that must have been to them. But that wasn't the only unusual thing they saw. Along with those 2,000 dead pigs, here is the man that they have all probably avoided for years because he was wildly crazy, running naked and shrieking. And um, you can only imagine what uh, his appearance must have been like. Don't you know, they had always said, don't go over to that side of the lake. That's where the crazy guy is. You know, don't, okay, kids, don't play over there. That avoided him for years. And now there he is. He's sitting perfectly calm, peaceful, um, speaking rationally and completely dressed, which he has never been um, in their knowledge. And their response to all this, 
Their response to all this, unfortunately for them, was not to recognize who Jesus was and to fall at his feet and understand what's taken place here. No, their response to all this is fear. And they beg them, they beg Jesus to leave. They are happier living in the darkness, living with a legion of demons and a crazed man right there in their midst, tormenting and terrorizing this gentleman. They're happier with that than the possibility that Jesus might be a powerful God that would bring even more change into their life. We talked in the leaders meeting about um, how we've all tried to tell different people about Jesus and They've said, oh, well, don't tell me anymore. I don't want to change my life. I don't want to start going to church and maybe have to give up um, something in my life that I really like. That's where these townspeople are. They close their eyes to who Jesus is because they'd rather live in the darkness than encounter the light and the change that it might bring into their life. And so they beg Jesus to leave. John 3:19 on your verse sheet says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The townspeople didn't want any other change in their life. They were happy with the legion of demons on the side of the lake. But not everyone felt that way. Not everyone wanted to be rid of Jesus. So let's keep reading verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. You know, throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus' miracles cause some people to harden their heart. And to turn away from him. And yet there are others who immediately understand the light and run towards the light. Simply believing Jesus and longing to live in the light of who he is. And now that he's in his right mind again, free from the demons, this poor man is exactly like that. He has seen the light and he begs Jesus to go with him. Um, He's seen Jesus' power in his own life. It's real to him. And he's seen Jesus' servanthood, that he was even willing to serve a man that was oppressed and tormented. But Jesus um, tells him to go back to his family and tells him to testify to the Lord's mercy in his life. Now, the Decapolis that the man goes back to is... um, an area of 10 cities that are on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee and on the east side of the Jordan. Nine of the cities are on the east side of the Jordan. You might want to look at your map later. One of them is actually on the west side. But this is primarily a Gentile region. And so that's why Jesus lets the man go back and tell what's happened to him. You know, in chapter 1, he says to the leper that he's healed, don't tell anyone about this. But because this is a Gentile region, Jesus doesn't have any fear that talk of the Messiah is going to turn up any difficulty for his ministry or any opposition to Jesus himself. Um, There are two great observations for us to make in this miracle. And the first one is, and I know you've all seen it, that without a doubt Jesus has divine power and divine authority that places him in complete dominion over the spiritual realm. 
You know, in the previous chapters, we have seen Jesus cast out a demon. Um, but here we see Jesus cast out a legion of demons. Thousands of demons. It doesn't matter how many demons there are or how powerful they are. Jesus has authority over them. Jesus is Lord of all. Read John 13.3 on your verse sheet. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus knows that he has this power and authority, that he has complete dominion over the spiritual realm, and he is not afraid to exercise it. And our second observation with this miracle is that Jesus is willing to serve even the most difficult people in the world. Those that are oppressed and tormented, those that aren't even in their right minds. If you remember back to week one when Deb opened up our study of Mark, she told us that the key verse in Mark is Mark 10.45. It's on your verse sheet. It says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' servanthood, his purpose in coming to serve, knows no boundary of appropriateness or of acceptability or even entitlement. And because of that, Jesus brings healing to a man who doesn't even have the mental capacity to ask for it. And as we look at how this man has experienced life change that comes only from Jesus through the power of Jesus and through the gift of service that Jesus has to offer to people in their lives, we need to ask ourselves a question. We need to ask ourselves if we want life change also. We need to ask if we are like the townspeople who are scared by Jesus' power and confused by his willingness to serve. So scared that we don't even recognize who Jesus is. And what glimmer that we have, we want to turn and run to, run from. Are we like this man who sees the light of who Jesus is? Who sees that Jesus is able to change his life and willing to change his life? And he runs straight towards that light. All of us have to ask ourselves that question in our lives. But let's keep reading. Verse 21 in Mark 5 says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jesus and the disciples actually travel to the west side of the Sea of Galilee now by boat. And just as before, everywhere that Jesus goes, when he steps out into a region that has heard about him and heard about his healing power, um, there's a crowd that gathers around him. And in the midst of that crowd is one of the synagogue leaders, Jairus. And he comes, and even with his... um, uh, in, In this desperate situation... He seeks Jesus out and he's willing to humble himself and to ask for Jesus' help. Now, a synagogue leader is not a priest. 
He's a lay leader that is in charge of the synagogue, in charge of both the building and in charge of the worship service. And because of that, he really is a respected man in the community. He's someone of power and prestige that other people would know. And in the midst of his pain and his fear, he seeks out Jesus. Even though uh, he's this man of prominence, he doesn't appear to be anything but humble and confident that Jesus can heal his daughter. And Jesus, the servant that he is, lays aside whatever agenda Jesus has had for that day, and he goes with Jairus. So let's keep reading and see what happens. Verse 25. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. And when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? At once, you see the people crowding against you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? Because Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, it was encouraging to me that even Jesus has his plans interrupted occasionally. I know you have days like this that don't go as you plan. And as he traveled to Jairus' house to intervene in this child's terminal and life-threatening illness, a woman who suffers from an incurable uh, condition anonymously pursues Jesus. Now, for 12 years, she has suffered from some sort of It's either a hormonal issue or maybe um, a uterine disease of some sort. But there are no doctors in her day and age and no amount of money that have been able to relieve her of pain. And because we're um, a room full of women today, we can understand um, how debilitating this would be in anyone's life. And you can imagine how difficult under those circumstances it would be to go about your business day by day. Um, But there's more to it. There's more to it for this particular woman because it's made almost intolerable by the fact that under Jewish law, um, she is ritualistically unclean because of her bleeding. And anyone that comes in contact with her is ritualistically unclean and cannot participate in the worship service until they um, do what it takes according to to the Levitical law, to be uh, made clean. So she is definitely isolated and outcast, which is more difficult than her probably than her physical suffering. Read Leviticus 15.25 on your verse sheet. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time, other than her monthly period, or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her period. You know, if we read on in the scriptures in Leviticus, we would also learn that not only is she unclean, but anywhere she has been is now unclean. If she sat on a chair, the chair is now unclean. And anyone that touches that chair after her is now unclean. If she's laid in the bed, if she's touched um, 
bed covers, whatever. So you can imagine that people, um, they might have been able to give her uh, some physical space around her person, but any place she had been would then make them unclean. That is difficult. She is someone who must be avoided in her um, world. So her life is one big, lonely humiliation. But in spite of that, what I love is that she's a woman of faith. She's heard of Jesus' healing power. And we don't know whether it's her embarrassment or whether it's because she realizes she is a woman and she is unclean. But she quietly and anonymously approaches Jesus in the crowd from behind. Um, And she reaches out, maybe even just one finger, and touches his cloak. Mark even includes here in verse 28 the thoughts that were going through her head. She thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. What kind of faith is that, ladies? And she was. She was. Her faith does heal her. Her bleeding stops. And the change in her body was so remarkable that in Mark 29, he records that she felt it. She felt immediately as she touched his cloak that her suffering had ended and her body was healed. But she's not the only one that feels something. Jesus also feels something here. And he immediately wheels around and says, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? Not even his body, but just his clothes. And you've been in a crowd of people before, and there are people all around you. Would you know it when one person brushed up against you? Probably not, because everyone is up against you. But Jesus does, and he... um, understands that the power has gone out from him. Now, this is an unusual expression that Mark uses in verse 30 where he says the power has gone out from Jesus. It does not mean that Jesus is like a charged battery where if you touch it, it unconsciously discharges power from the battery. Um, We have to remember that this is Jesus. And Jesus, while perfectly human, is also perfectly divine. And his divine power is always under the control of his conscious volition. So it is consistent with the healing ministry that we've already seen with Jesus that um, to believe that this expression means that Jesus knew divinely of her touch and willingly extended his power to her. He's aware of the miracle that has taken place. And in verse 32, we see him searching the crowd for the recipient And I already love Jesus, but this made me love him even more because it points out how personal Jesus is. He wants to see who this is. He wants to look her in the face, just like you and I. He wants to have a relationship with her. But the other thing he wants to do is he wants her to know what has really healed her. This isn't some superstitious rubbing of the Buddha's belly here that has made her um, healed. This is her faith. There's nothing magical about Jesus' cloak. It's a garment that he donned every morning. But it's his faith. It's her faith in his power that has healed her. Um, This is the only place in the Gospels when Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. This is the only place in the Gospels that Jesus calls anyone daughter. And can you imagine how much it must mean to this woman 
who has been an outcast from her own family. Not even her own family has probably been willing to be around her. So can you imagine how much it must mean to her to have him call her daughter? That moment of faith and healing in her life has taken her from being a humiliated outcast to being a member of a spiritual family that she will never leave. She will never leave. Our observation about this miracle is, of course, that Jesus has complete dominion over our physical bodies. There's no disease that Jesus cannot um, overcome by his power. He has created our bodies, and by his power and by his will, Jesus can heal them. It's not on your verse sheet, but let me read you Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created. All things were created by him and for him. And that means he has dominion over our physical bodies. Another uh, observation we need to make here is what an example this is, again, of Jesus' servanthood being extended even to those who are outcasts from society, outcasts from their very family, outcasts from the world. It matters not to Jesus that she was unclean. And because of that, because of that, after many years of suffering, the power of Jesus and the willing servanthood of Jesus has changed this woman's life. And our life change question this morning is, are we women that pursue Jesus with a determined, a determined and focused faith, even when our life may have been hard for years? This woman's life was hard for years, but she did not give up. And when she had the opportunity to pursue Jesus by faith, she took it. She took it. Um, when we believe that Jesus can do what he says he can and will do what we know he can, that's all that it takes to take any of us from being humiliated outcasts to being daughters of the Most High King. Let's go on. Let's read verses um, 35 through the end of that chapter. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to him, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Kalitha Koum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now Jesus and the little girl's father had been delayed, of course, by this woman and her need. And now it probably wasn't for very long, but it was long enough for Jairus' little girl to die and for people to come and to tell him the worst possible thing that he could imagine has actually happened 
His precious daughter is dead. But not only do they give him that devastating news, they also do something else crummy here. They tell him there's no hope. Don't bother the teacher anymore. She's dead. There's nothing else that can be done. What they don't realize is that um, a situation is only hopeless no matter what it is when we turn away from Jesus, not when we stay with him. Jesus understands that Jairus has come to him initially in faith, and in verse 36, it is Jesus himself. Jesus himself that speaks these words to encourage Jairus' faith, where he says, don't be afraid. And you know Jesus understands the fear um, that went into this poor father's heart when he heard those words. But Jesus said to him, it's pretty simple, Jairus. All you have to do is believe. All you have to do is believe. Just believe. And I think that Jairus must have looked into Jesus' face and into his eyes and thought, okay, forget you guys. I'm going with Jesus. There must not have been any other choice. And, and he apparently did continue on in faith because the next thing that we know um, is that Jesus is... Um, at his house with his inner circle of of disciples, Peter and James and John. And probably Jesus only allowed this inner circle of disciples to accompany him because Jesus knows what's fixing to happen here, doesn't he? He hasn't gone to the house to be one of the paid mourners, has he? He's gone to the house of this precious dead child with an intention in mind. And if we think about how word of his healing had circulated and brought crowds wherever he went, can you imagine what word of that he had resurrected a little girl from the dead? What kind of commotion that would cause around him? That would only increase the controversy. So he's just taken his inner circle with him. And when Jesus arrives at the house, they do find that the elaborate Jewish ritual of paid mourners has already begun. That's what all the weeping and wailing is. Obviously, the little girl's death was anticipated. They had already had the mourners um, ready and set to come. And the second they hear that a little girl dies, that's exactly what they're doing. They are there at the house weeping and wailing. But Jesus simply goes in and rebukes everyone and says, stop. We don't need this. The little girl is not dead. She's asleep. Now, uh, Jesus uses this term um, sleep here figuratively, simply meaning that death resembles sleep. There is no scriptural support for anywhere in the New Testament that would have us believe that there is a uh, place between death and the resurrection where people sleep. This is sometimes where the misconception of soul sleep comes from, but there's nothing in the New Testament that um, would have us believe that. Remember, um, uh, and I don't have it on your verse sheet, but to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. There is no soul sleep. And we have to remember that this is Jesus talking here. And Jesus knows that this little girl's death is not irrevocable. For him, he knows that he can wake her up. So in that respect, it is certainly like sleep. And Jesus uses similar terminology in, uh, when he, before the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. Look on your verse sheet. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus had fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. So in Jesus' uh, great power, death is simply like sleep. 
And that's exactly what happens. With her parents and her inner circle of disciples as witnesses, he takes the child by the hand and he he does it really simply. He just says, little girl, I say to you, get up. And that's exactly what she does. And we know that her recovery is complete and instantaneous. Uh, She's not a sick child that he says, okay, now take good care of her and give her some chicken broth here. She gets up instantly and he says, give her something to eat. And that signifies to us how complete her healing was. And in contrast to the first miracle we looked at where he tells the demon-possessed man, go back home and tell everyone what has happened. He says to the people here, Don't tell anyone about this. And obviously the mourners and the people at the house are going to know something has happened. The little girl was dead and now she's walking around having her lunch. Something unusual has happened here. Um, But Jesus truly does not want this spread about. He has healed the child for the right reason, which is his compassion for Jairus and this family. And he wants those who come to him to come to him out of the right reason, not simply um, for everything in their world to be healed or resurrected. He wants them to come to him for the truth, the truth. And one of the truths about this third miracle is that Jesus has dominion even over death. 2 Timothy 1.10 on your verse sheet says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death. The other truth that we see here in this miracle is, once again, Jesus is willing to serve. He is just as willing to serve the proud and the prominent and the privileged as synagogue leader as he was the man who was tormented and the woman who was outcast. Jesus has simply come to serve, ladies, no matter who it is. And, you know, life has been dramatically changed for Jairus and his family because in his worst hour, what did Jairus do? He chose to believe Jesus and to go with Jesus. And that has made an incredible difference in his life. And our life change question today is, are we women who listen to the world? And to our friends, when we're in desperate circumstances, are are we women who listen to Jesus and believe that he's who he says he is? Believe that he's all-powerful and all-serving, as these miracles show. When Deb finished up chapter 4 for us last week, she, um, we looked at the story of Jesus and his disciples in the boat once again. And there was a storm, and the disciples thought they were going to die. And Jesus, of course... Um, showed that he had complete dominion over nature when he calmed the storm. So we've seen that he has dominion over nature. This week we've seen that he has dominion over the spiritual world. He has dominion over our physical bodies. He has dominion over death. He is not just a great teacher. And he is not just the most uh, amazing prophet in the world. He is the Messiah. And he has the power to change every life We've also seen this week that he is a servant to all. We've seen him change the life of an oppressed and tortured um, man. We've seen a woman who's unclean and outcast. And now we've seen him serve the synagogue leader. You know, there's a lot of talk in our culture today about class warfare, about the haves and the have-nots. But there is no such talk in Jesus's economy. Jesus never looks at whether we are rich or poor or privileged or outcast. When we come to him in an hour of need, he simply serves. 
Because that is what he came to do. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I want to close today by just sharing with you two lives that will keep, two lies that will keep our lives from being changed, like the people in chapter 5, like their lives were changed. And the first one is the lie that Jesus can't. And we've all heard this in our head, haven't we, from the deceiver. Um, Jesus can't do anything about my broken marriage. Jesus can't do anything about my grown child who just told me they were gay. Jesus can't do anything about my cancer diagnosis or about my financial problems. Jesus can't help with that. That is a lie. That is a lie. Jesus can. Jesus can because he has dominion over everything in our lives. And the second lie, which is even more powerful than the first one, is, okay, Jesus can, but he won't do it for me. Maybe he'll do it for you, but he won't do it for me. And that also is a lie. No matter what we are facing or who we are, Jesus can And Jesus will meet each and every one of us in whatever desperate hour of need we have when we come to him in faith. When we believe that Jesus is all-powerful, when we believe that Jesus is all-serving, then Jesus is life-changing. Let's pray. Lord, it's true. It is simply true. That you are all-powerful and all-serving and life-changing. And I ask you that that would be the truth in every one of our lives today. That if there's anyone in here that um, doubts that, that you would speak to their hearts. And they would be willing to be women that run to you in faith just to be in your light. Lord, I thank you for the word. I thank you for the truth that it is and how it changes our lives every single time we go to it. And I thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, ladies.